edition of Speaking of Jung. Everything Jung wrote was based on an experience. Jungian psychology isn't about ideas, it's about experiences. This quarantine series is based on my personal experiences with interesting people. Joining us for the 19th episode in this series is award-winning author Ralph Blumenthal in New York City. He earned a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University before joining the New York Times at the age of 22. Four years later, he was assigned as a foreign correspondent and was sent to Germany, Vietnam, and Cambodia. Returning to New York in 1971, he became an investigative reporter specializing in stories about foreign and American corruption and organized crime. In 1987, he led the New York Times team that exposed the Tawana Brawley racial hoax, a year later, he published his first book, Last Days of the Sicilians, on the FBI's Pizza Connection drug case, and in 1990, collaborated with five other Times reporters on the book Outrage, the story behind the Tawana Brawley hoax, based on their investigative articles. Mr. Blumenthal was on the Times team that covered the 1993 World Trade Center truck bombing, which won the paper a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage. The following year, he co-authored a series on the fatal crashes of U.S. Air. It was nominated for a Pulitzer and won the Worth Bingham Prize for Investigative Journalism, presented by President Clinton at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and was a finalist for Harvard University's Goldsmiths Prize. In 1994, he joined the Culture News Department as an arts reporter where he shared a Times Publishers Award for a series on the Sotheby's and Christie's antitrust scandal, just one of over 20 New York Times awards he has received over the years. After September 11th, he briefly rejoined the investigative team covering terrorism. That same year, he was named a fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation to research the progressive career and penal reforms of warden Louis E. Laws, the Man Who Made Sing Sing Sing, which inspired Mr. Blumenthal's 2004 book, Miracle at Sing Sing, How One Man Transformed the Lives of America's Most Dangerous Prisoners. He is also the author of Once Through the Heart on a police narcotics detective's struggle to rescue his own daughter from drugs, and Stork Club, a history of the fabled night spot, its renegade owner, Sherman Billingsley, and the gangster era in Gotham, and, along with John Miller, compiled the book The Gotti Tapes, the sensational FBI tapes that convicted America's most powerful mobster. For the past 20 years, Mr. Blumenthal has taught journalism in the summer program of Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire and at Baruch College at the City University of New York, where he also oversees historic collections in the Newman Library Archives. He continues to contribute to the New York Times as a freelance and co-wrote the much-publicized December 2017 story, Glowing Auras and Black Money, 
the Pentagon's mysterious UFO program, exposing the United States government's involvement with the investigation of unidentified aerial phenomena. His latest book, The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack, was published by High Road Books of the University of New Mexico Press in March of this year. It is the only comprehensive biography of the late John Edward Mack, a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, Harvard Medical School psychiatrist, and hero to many in the UFO community. And it is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, May 26, 2021, through the magic of Zoom. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Ralph. Thank you, Laura. Real pleasure. I love that intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you for being here and for writing this book. And a lot of the listeners might not be familiar with John Mack. So I'd like to cover who he was, but also who you are. And I know this is kind of a cliched question, but what led you to write this book? It's extraordinary. Well, thank you. Thank you. So John Mack was a, a Harvard psychiatrist, uh, very esteemed. Um, he had, as you noted, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize writing a psychobiography of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, he had distinguished himself at Harvard in a number of social causes, including bringing uh, mental health services to a uh, downtrodden area of Cambridge. Um, he became very active in the uh, protests against nuclear weapons. He became, through his uh, biography of, of the Lawrence of Arabia, very interested in Middle East peace and became uh, very um, involved in peace talks between the Arabs and the Israelis. And we know how that went. Um, and uh, he met with Yasser Arafat. Um, anyway, so he was very well grounded in earthly matters until a series of things uh, uh, as life you know, happens, uh, the synchronicities that Jung talked about uh, sort of propelled him in a new direction, which was to interest him in alien abduction, which was very unlike uh, other people at Harvard, needless to say. So um, that's basically what got him started. And we can talk in more detail about these steps that led him there, very quite extraordinary. And I got into it um, when I was a New York Times correspondent in Texas, and I picked up, uh, again, completely synchronistically, a book uh, that he had, that John Mack had written, his second book, Passport to the Cosmos. And I was amazed to read that a Harvard psychiatrist was interested in aliens and UFOs. And uh, I had no idea um, of his uh, you know, eminence then. Uh, he had been written up in the New York Times. He'd been on Oprah. As I said, he won this Pulitzer Prize. So I came to it very naively, as, as he, in his way, was naive, um, and thought I would give him a call and maybe do an interview with him and write up this Harvard psychiatrist interested in UFOs. And then, to my shock, a few days later, I picked up the, the paper and find he'd been run down in London and killed in a drunk driving accident. I looked the wrong way, as Americans do in London, and was, was killed. So um, that got me started. I was more interested than ever in his story, and I got access to his archives, et cetera, et cetera. So we can talk about that. Well, 
I'm interested in you picking up his book, Passport to the Cosmos. You were, were you in a bookstore and it caught your eye? You know, I've tried to think uh, back on what that was. It happened in 2004. I I love used bookstores. I love, you know, books and I love to pick up, you know, um, I love to hold books, not necessarily read them on, you know, Kindle. So I would always go into a used bookstore and see what was there. So I also, you know, like to to visit a town in Texas called Archer City, where Larry McMurtry uh, established a whole bunch of bookstores. And um, uh, so the whole town is bookstores, by the way, Archer City. Is that near Dallas, Houston? Uh, Archer City is, uh, as I remember, it's not far from Dallas. It's in okay. more in central to western Texas. I forgot okay. exactly where. But it's the setting for um, uh, the last picture show, actually. Wow. Uh, that's uh, People will recognize Archer City. So the whole town is, is his bookstores. And uh, so I don't know whether I picked it up there or there was a bookstore near me in Houston where I was based. But I would always go into bookstores. So this thing, you know, they they tell stories about books um, jumping off shelves into people's hands. Uh, There's something, you know, mysterious about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I'm not saying this happened to me exactly that way, but uh, it landed in my in my hands somehow. And uh, it was not a subject that particularly uh you know resonated with me i had read science fiction as a kid i read you know ray bradbury isaac asimov that was part of our world post-war world but then i stopped being interested in science fiction so um it wasn't a particularly interest particularly an interest of mine but when i read about this harvard psychiatrist um and his research into you know alien abduction uh, that caught my interest right I first heard of John Mack through Whitley Strieber, and there is a wonderful interview that Whitley did with Dr. Mack uh, back in 1999 that is available on Whitley's website, unknowncountry.com. I will provide a link to that in the description. So you picked up the book, you found it interesting, and because you're an investigative reporter, you thought maybe you could do something with this because yes it is unusual for a harvard trained psychiatrist which is a a medical doctor to be interested in uh alien abduction now did dr mack use the term alien i always hesitate to use that word yeah yeah he used it um um as a matter of fact it's a subtitle of his book um um i'm trying to remember it's called uh, abduction uh, alien, I'm blanking on it now, okay, but I'll anyway, he, he, uh, he did not shy from, from the terms alien. Uh, he did prefer the word experiencer to abductee, uh, because first of all, not everybody uh, is abducted, uh, you know, uh, certainly not physically. There's a question of how physically real the phenomenon is, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, it, it is a very, uh, subtle, uh, in some cases, um, phenomenon and and abduct and experiencer is neutral. It's a nicer word because it doesn't prejudge what the experience is. So um, that's the term I, I use in my book a lot. Although I don't mind using abductee because that's how quite a number of the people who spoke to him saw their experience. 
Right. So his first book is titled Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens. And the follow-up, the one you found, is titled Passport to the Cosmos, Human Transformation and Alien Encounters. So I hesitate to use the term alien because we don't know uh, what mm. is at the root of this phenomena. And uh, Whitley Strieber, who I've known for 30 years, he uses the term visitors. And so yes. I do hesitate to use that. But did Dr. Mack believe that what these people were experiencing were aliens? And how, how would he define that term alien? Okay. Well, Mac was very, he came to this with no prejudgments. Obviously, he was so bowled over uh, by the accounts that these seemingly normal people, normal in every way, not mentally ill, etc., uh, that these people gave him, including children as young as two years old, by the way, who, who were not influenced by books and movies, um, but uh, he was so uh, impressed by the vividness of their accounts um, that he adopted the accounts as as real in a way um, uh, in some dimension. Let's say okay. uh, he 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 moved off the uh, initial idea that these were happening in absolute reality, and he became more convinced it was happening in some liminal. Uh, dimension uh, between our reality and, and something else. But wh whatever it was, he uh, he took at face value uh, the accounts of people who described these beings in great detail. Uh, the the so-called grays, the short uh, ones with the mushroom kind of complexion, uh, rubbery uh, limbs, uh, you know, enlarged cranium, and most significantly the bulbous insectoid eyes that seem to uh, carry telepathic messages. Um, so he um, he wasn't gonna, you know. Uh, tiptoe around this issue and say we don't know what these things look like or uh, I don't want to call them aliens. He he thought they were real enough to the people who were telling him the stories, so he adopted the term. What's very important to note is that Dr. Mack, as we mentioned, was a trained medical doctor, psychiatrist, and he also was a trained psychoanalyst and worked with children and adolescents. And so he knew what mental illness was and he knew the signs. And he determined that the people who were coming to him with these stories were not mentally ill. Right, that's that was very a big, important. Yeah. yeah, no, Laura, that's absolutely right. That was a big breakthrough because the uh, snap reaction of most people coming to the subject for the first time is that these people are crazy. Right. Um, there's something wrong with them. And of course, Mac, with his um, extensive training, and he was a brilliant psychiatrist um, who had, as you said, studied childhood development. Um, and um, he had uh, also written a book on nightmares, by the mm -hmm. way. So he was an expert in a lot of these fields. So when people said, oh, these people are crazy or they're just suffering nightmares, sleep paralysis, uh, he knew enough to know that did not account for the full nature of the experience because it had to, any hypothesis had to uh, explain a whole number of, of situations. Um, and uh, he said, if someone were to come forward with a 
uh, with an explanation uh, that uh, would would cover all these different um, areas that he ticked off, uh, he'd be willing to adopt it. But um, so, as you say, he was uh, schooled in, in psychiatry. He knew what what insanity or mental illness or delusion looked like. And what one of the things that convinced him so powerfully is the affect of people recounting these experiences afterwards, either in relaxation techniques, uh, hypnotic states, or even in full consciousness. He would talk to them, and uh, some of these experiences were remembered consciously. And when the people recounted them, and when they recounted them in states of relaxation, even more so, uh, their reaction was so vivid uh, they cursed and screamed and cried and wept and uh, that he said they could not be making this up. That was his conclusion as a, as a trained psychiatrist. I mean, that's he said that's what, you know, his training is. That's what he gets paid for. So um, he said, that's what I get paid for. That's my field, you know, and, and uh, you know, people often said skeptics, uh, oh, they're making it up for publicity. Well, publicity is the last thing these people wanted. Uh, they were they did everything to avoid publicity. They had to bring themselves to talk to to people like Dr. Mack. So um, anyway, for for reasons like this, as you say, he was he was a trained psychiatrist and he recognized uh, um, authenticity. Mm. And, and that's, you know, obviously was a big factor with him. Great point. So for the listeners that might be a little lost uh, with where we are, we are not talking about UFO sightings. We're talking about something quite different. Now, that's not to say that UFOs or UAPs are not part of this story. Dr. Max's work as a psychiatrist was about people who interacted either with a, a, a sighting, a craft, or with their occupants. So would you would you tell us how uh, these stories, how they re- how the alien abduction story differs from a UFO story? Because okay. we're, we're talking about two different things here. We are. And and in my reporting for the New York Times, I've been very, I and my colleagues have been very meticulous about not dragging in aliens because where we are now in the UFO uh, investigation uh, or the government's UFO investigation um, is that they are now able to confirm that these objects exist. They are physical. They've been caught on Navy videos, uh, Navy thermal imaging devices, radar. They've been eyeballed by highly trained pilots. So number one, that is a big breakthrough from the days not too long ago when these were uh, speculated on as uh, psychological constructs, archetypes, according to Jung, who was very disappointed to find they might be real. <laughs> uh, but uh, so let's remember that, that we are now at the point where the government is acknowledging that these things are physically real, but other than that, they know nothing about them. And they don't, and the government people who are discussing this and researching this do not speculate even unofficially on 
who's behind the wheel, where do they come from, what do they want with us. Uh, who, uh, they don't even say they, okay. because all they're focusing on is the physical object. It's unidentified, but it's real. Okay, so uh, that didn't stop Dr. Mack. He uh, observed that a lot of the people coming forward and talking to him um, had an association or a sighting with a UFO. That a lot of these experiences, not all, because Whitley Strieber, uh, as you know, uh, has had experiences independent of, of UFOs. Um, so let's remember that. But it commonly, or with a core, uh, you know, experience, let's say, uh, involved some awareness or sighting of a UFO, and then uh, the materialization of these beings that often uh, took these people in their telling uh, to, the, to the craft, to the UFO, for um, ex examinations, experiments, hybrid breeding. There's a whole range of things that supposedly happened on the spacecraft, on the ships. Um, but um, so, so Mac didn't stop with the UFOs. He wanted to know because the people's accounts, the people who came to him didn't stop with, they didn't just say, I saw a UFO and nothing else. Actually, often their memories would be clouded. They'd say, I saw a UFO and I don't remember anything else, but I, uh, I was in the car and I got to my destination three hours later and I don't know what happened in the meantime. So that missing time was later filled in in, in relaxation, recollections, hypnotic regression, et cetera, to bring up remembered encounters with the beings on these ufos and that's okay. a really if, if i might jump in here that's a really great example of why this is not sleep paralysis because somebody was in their car driving and encountered something and had this experience because right. th there have been people that try to dismiss this as sleep paralysis and right. what we sort of dream while we're awake uh, upon waking up, that we're still in a dream state and we could see things. But people are driving a car and and have these encounters and they're similar, right? Right. Their stories are uh, similar. Well, I mean, sleep paralysis is a recognized condition. It does exist. Yes. Um, um, but... Uh, as you say, uh, uh, quite a number of these uh, encounter experiences happened not in the bedroom when people were asleep or waking up or entering, you know, deep REM sleep, but when they were walking around. Now, Carrie Mullis, the um, late uh, Nobel Prize winning chemist uh, who wrote a book himself, yes. described an experience which I mention in, in The Believer, where he... Um, saw a, a, a raccoon that spoke to him <laughs> and yep. after that he remembered nothing till he uh came to himself on the road uh, the next morning and um didn't see a ufo mm -hmm. that he remembered um so and it was not sleep paralysis because he was walking uh, from his country house to uh, to the backyard when he saw this uh, raccoon with glowing eyes that spoke to him. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't in bed sleeping. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. Sleep paralysis does not explain the totality of these experiences. Let's continue with how this progressed for Dr. Mack. He 
he we really didn't cover how these people sought him out but this gentleman named bud hopkins comes into the story who was actually my first experience of this community back in 1987 uh, i was in college and my boyfriend at the time uh bought bud hopkins book titled intruders i I, i'm still rattled by it because my boyfriend i'm not going to name his name was absolutely petrified i had never seen him like that i was uh in college in cleveland i was attending a private jesuit university and he came from a very conservative catholic family and i still don't know why he was reading the book intruders but he was telling me about it and some of it sounded kind of familiar to me and i am not going to go into that here my own experiences but he was absolutely petrified and and as a result of that he and i both started attending monthly meetings cleveland ohio has the oldest ufo uh, continually meeting ufo group in in the united states uh, oh. called the cleveland ufology project so it all began with bud hopkins book so Tell us the relationship between Bud Hopkins and Dr. Mack. Okay, well, uh, like you, uh, uh, John Mack got into the whole um, field through Bud Hopkins. Mm. Uh, Bud Hopkins was an artist. He had a studio in Cape Cod, and he had seen a UFO um, back in 1964, uh, driving to a party with friends. And he got interested in the the phenomenon, and he taught himself uh, hypnosis, and um, he had an experience I relate in the book of, of talking to his um, wine uh, merchant in the neighborhood in Manhattan who had had a very eerie experience seeing a UFO land in New Jersey and little people cu- climbing out of it, testing the soil. And he told this to Bud and Bud got interested and started did an article for the Village Voice and started investigating. Right. So Bud Hopkins... Uh, not a, a psychological professional, an artist, uh, but he taught himself hypnosis and he started interviewing these people and, and wrote a book, um, Intruders, and another book called Missing Time. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, J- uh, John Mack was out at Esalen uh, investigating uh, breathing disciplines, holotropic breathing. And Esalen, as you know, was the go-to place for psychic experiments and uh, all kinds of interesting intellectual, uh, you know, borderline research, uh, very innovative place in the 60s, 70s. Um, So this was the 80s. And um, John Mack heard from another psychiatrist out there about uh, Bud Hopkins doing this, this work, and he immediately dismissed it as crazy. He said, these people must be crazy. Bud Hopkins must be crazy. Uh, he turned down a, a, an offer for an introduction. But again, one of the uh, synchronicities that, that mark our lives uh, he was in New York in 1990, uh, visiting his friend Bob Lifton, the other great, another great psychiatrist, had written about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Nazi war criminals, um, and uh, he wasn't far from Bud Hopkins, and uh, it popped into his mind to take up that invitation to to 
visit him after all. So he called him. And I tell a little story, if you got a moment uh, yeah. in the book, Please. that um, 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 Bob Lifton, uh, the, the psychiatrist he was visiting, uh, knew Bud Hopkins, as it turned out, because they both, uh, psychiatrists vacation in Cape Cod, and Bud Hopkins had a studio in Cape Cod. So um, John Mack mentioned to his host in New York, Bob Lifton, and his wife, hey, I was going to call this guy Bud Hopkins, uh, and I, I, you know Bud Hopkins from Cape Cod. Uh, do you want to come with me? And Lifton's wife, BJ, then pipes up with something that is totally eerie and says to her husband, no, um, you have a choice about getting involved in this and John doesn't. Well, when I heard that story from Bob Lifton, it, uh, my mind exploded because uh, here's his wife, BJ, who since died, unfortunately, but um, like a Cassandra seeing this whole thing you know, before it ever played out, seeing that John Mack would become captivated by this phenomenon and she didn't want her husband to get involved. And he didn't actually, although he knew about it, the, the phenomenon. Uh, so P.S. Uh, um, John goes by himself to Bud Hopkins. Uh, they hit it off. Bud Hopkins gives him a bunch of letters from people who read his books, people like you and your boyfriend. Um, who were talking about their own abduction experiences. And Hopkins gives these letters to John Mack and says, look, you're the psychiatrist. You look at these letters and see if these people are crazy. Yeah. So that's what got him started. He took the letters and he said, wow, it blew his mind. So that's what got him started. That's what got him started. And you mentioned that Dr. Mack was open to unusual experiences. He was. Um, he was. Uh, this is interesting ab about him. Um, he grew up in a very uh, conventional German Jewish household. His parent, his his father was a professor at City College when I went to City College. So we crossed paths there. <laughs> Synchronicity, very spooky. Um, and uh, his his mother died. John's mother died when he was eight and a half months old of appendicitis. Uh, which haunted him his whole life. He missed his mother, which is one factor in his search for the ineffable, ineffable in the universe. We can get into that. Um, but anyway, um, uh, his 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 father and his stepmother were both very secular Jews. They they didn't uh, you know believe much in spiritual matters. They were. Uh, uh, you know, culturally Jewish, but not uh, religiously Jewish. Anyway, um, uh, and yet he was a kind of a rebel. Uh, he always, uh, he, he didn't mind st sticking, standing out. He protested against nuclear weapons. He, he, he bucked the establishment when it came to, you know, certain things. So um, he was very confident. He was super confident because mm -hmm. he, he was born in a wealthy home. His father had quite a bit of money. Um, so, um, he had that kind of confidence that rich people have that they don't care, you know, yeah. they'll get by, um, he didn't have to struggle for a paycheck. So, um, that helped him when, when he tackled this issue because he was not afraid of breaking boundaries. Right. And he was at Harvard and, uh, William James was at Harvard and Jung actually was invited to Harvard University in 1936, where they gave him an honorary doctorate. But oh. um, something 
not so great happened at Harvard uh, to Dr. Mack. And in the book, you, you call it the Harvard Inquisition. And I think it's important for us to talk about this because, uh, and in Dr. Mack's words, it's when worldviews collide. And I'd like for you to tell us how he was treated by the university because of the research he was doing. Okay. Um, So as you very uh, rightly pointed out, Harvard was no stranger to anomalous research. William James, the father of psychology, had been talking about seances and contacting the dead Mm -hmm. at Harvard 100 years before John Mack. Mm -hmm. So it's not like Harvard was this complete ivory tower where these subjects were verboten. Um, But something about Mack's approach to it uh, really rubbed Harvard the wrong way. He was very enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was kind of naive. He was passionate, as the subtitle of my book uh, suggests, The Passion of John Mack. Mm -hmm. He threw himself into things without necessarily thinking about the uh, political consequences and how it would look to, you know, Harvard Medical School. So he uh, he wrote a book, his first book, in 1994, based on his his research with uh, people who reported these encounters, and the book um, uh, abduction did pretty well. He was on Oprah. Um, he was written up in the Times Sunday Magazine, um, and as you know, uh, act. Uh, Academicians are not known for their tolerance of colleagues who succeed. (laughs) Uh, There was some envy there. Uh, He had won a Pulitzer Prize with his biography of of, uh, T.E. Lawrence, uh, you know, 20 years before. Um, So there was some professional jealousy. And basically, they didn't like all the attention uh, John was bringing to Harvard, because everybody mentioned Harvard psychiatrist John Mack is studying aliens. Harvard psychiatrist. So they decided they needed to look into his methods, whether he was following scientific methods, whatever that was, because scientists don't follow scientific methods. <laughs> they, they follow whatever method seems to you know, work for them in terms of research. But anyway, um, they decided that he needed to be uh, investigated for whether he was uh, dealing properly with his patients, whether he was financially benefiting you know, from their insurance, all these things that turned out to have no relevance whatsoever in the end. Um, and and one of the points I make in my book is that when they told uh, John that he was being investigated by this committee, they said it was not an inquisition. Mm-hmm. So he's a psychiatrist, and the first thing he thinks of, if it's not an inquisition, why are they using that word? <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, and sure enough, as I, I think I, you know, uh, confirm in my account, it was an inquisition because it delved into his personal beliefs and his finances, his relationships, um, and. Um, they were trying to catch him out. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of how, and, and you would know better than me, is with the mafia, they didn't catch them at the big hmm. things. They caught them for tax evasion. Right, so were right, they, Al Capone. <laughs> they, they, they were trying to go through Dr. Mack's 
procedures to see if he broke any little law so that they could get him on that because they couldn't get him on what he was studying? Well, that's right. They could not attack him on uh, academic freedom grounds. I mean, he he had the right. And they, they basically affirmed this uh, to their credit, the Harvard committee. Mm-hmm. They said, look, we're not you know, challenging your academic freedom to study anything you want. We're just challenging your way of going about it. Okay. Or we're looking into your way of going yeah. about it. So um, they did try to catch him on a number of things. And um, um, uh, and they didn't really succeed. I mean, what happened in the middle of this uh, whole thing, it's, it's an area I go into in my book. Um, Time magazine got a hold of this woman um, who claimed to have been an experiencer. She probably actually was an experiencer, but she told a phony story that really um, captivated John Mack about being on a spaceship during the Cuban Missile Crisis with Khrushchev and President Kennedy. (laughs) Sounds funny. Um, And... um, uh, but because John had heard all these absolutely crazy stories from people, right. um, he was interested in this one. Um, and he he basically, you know, credited her story, bought her story and was looking into it. And she then uh, told Time magazine that she made it all up and uh, that uh, she was um, – trying to expose John Mack as a cult leader and all these things. Well, uh, it turned out through Whitley Strieber, among other people, that she um, had approached him with her stories as well. And Mm -hmm. John thought she really was an experiencer. He documented that pretty well in his notes, which I have in my book. Um, And um, she had uh, some axe to grind against Mack, and Time magazine picked this up and uh, basically uh, expo- tried to expose him as a fraud uh, and, and, and very naive, who, who believed all these stories with no evidence. Um, so that came to the attention of the Harvard Committee as well. And, you know, it was a big story in Time magazine that called him the man from outer space. It was very damaging to Mac. Um, and... Um, now, as it happened, one of the other synchronicities, I knew the guy who wrote that story in Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. We had been correspondents together in, in Vietnam, and I was able to interview him. So I sort of got the backstory on how Time Magazine went about its investigation. And he admitted to me, the reporter, that he was skeptical of Mac from the very beginning. So anyway, um, the point is that it damaged Mac very much with Harvard and the committee. Uh, portrayed him as naive, as um, uh, foolish, uh, uh, whatever. And um, but but John had the advantage of two crackerjack lawyers defending yes. him. First, he went in without lawyers, which was again part of his naivete. He thought he could just talk to the Harvard, you know, committee. We were all colleagues, and uh, his nephew who was also at harvard said you've got to be out of your mind going into this committee uh, with no representation so he got himself a lawyer who turned out to be connected to harvard which didn't work out very well um and then he finally found uh, a man of basically who had the background you had he was a jesuit uh danny sheehan Yes. who had um studied uh he knew something about ufos he had an experience himself 
Um, he uh, had investigated uh, the Karen Silkwood case, the, the Ku Klux Klan, the, the Iran-Contra arms deal. He was a real firebrand. Mm -hmm. And um, the other lawyer, John Gott, a colleague, was um, uh, Eric McLeish, who had um, basically exposed the pre-abuse scandal in Boston. And that was, you know, in the movie Spotlight. Um, so he had these two great lawyers who were very aggressive and uh, really held Harvard's feet to the fire. And um, I, Harvard never, because the, the committee investigation was secret, mm -hmm. uh, it was supposed to be secret, it leaked out in, in some little ways, but Harvard never put out a, a report on this is what we found out about Mac, a public report. They issued reports to the to the deans, which I got a hold of. So my book has the the only account that I'm aware of, of of the Harvard Inquisition, as mm -hmm. I call it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it it does make for pretty scary reading because um, uh, it shows how they were how they were operating against him, and that the head of the committee uh, had no tolerance for anything. Uh, anomalous. Right. If you can't touch it, feel it, taste it, it ain't there. And this is the clash of worldviews that you referenced that, mm -hmm. that John said, we come from two different planets. He says, I am becoming aware that there is something out there that is more uh, complicated than the, you know, the, the three dimensions or four dimensions with time of our reality that there's some other reality out there that seems to impinge, uh, uh, you know, on our real, on our uh, world um, with these people's experiences. I don't know where they come from or, you know, how it happens, but it's certainly real to them and et cetera. And Harvard said, well, it ain't real to us. Yeah. If you can't prove it, where's the ashtray from the UFO? Um, so that was the clash of worldviews that Mac uh, uh, was shrewd enough to, to depict. Um, and I think it was, it was sad because you kind of expected more from these people. It's understandable. And a couple of things came to me when you were talking. One is that afterward, uh, you said that John Mack wrote uh, nearly a decade later in a manuscript that he was seeking to, to have published titled When Worldviews Collide. And he said, I can see now that I had to a large extent created my problem with the literalness that <laughs> I had treated the encounter phenomenon in the 1994 book. So he said, however, it is possible in some cases that people were taken bodily into a spacecraft. However, the question is more subtle and complex. So I'd like to bring that back. I, I said I wasn't going to talk about Jung, but I just want to briefly mention mm. Jung, who there are a lot of people who still think that Jung said that these are just archetypes, that this is myth. Jung did say that this is real. The UFOs are real, that we, we don't know what they are, but he was looking at them symbolically because that's what Jungians do. And that's what we do mm. in analysis, for instance, with dreams, is we look at it symbolically. So he was saying, he was looking at what does this mean uh, symbolically to the experiencer? 
So there's that. But what I was thinking about when you were talking is, um, and, and the reaction from Harvard, this sounds like the shadow. So another concept of Jung's, I am not at all surprised to hear that Harvard had this reaction, especially this was in the, was this in the 90s? Yeah, 94, basically. Yeah, yeah when his book came out. So it was 30 years ago, and uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like we've come much further since then. But uh, just briefly, the shadow, Jung's concept of the shadow, uh, Anne Casement, who I've interviewed on this podcast, uh, the great British Dom, she sums it up uh, quite brilliantly. She uh, defines the shadow as everything one has no wish to be. So I think that the things that John Mack was bringing to the table uh, were things that people don't want to look at or don't want to think about. And that, I'll, I'll stop talking in a second, but that reminds me mm. of what you you quote in the book. Dr. Mack was asked, I can't remember by whom, uh, what he would say to someone on their deathbed, was it? And he talked about fear. Oh, yeah. Fear is juicy. <laughs> stay with it. Stay, yeah. Yeah. Stay still. And so this this reaction from Harvard uh, about the reality that people are experiencing these things that we have no explanation for. We live in such a black and white society, uh, and where in this Western society, I mean, it's different in in other cultures in the East and. Dr. Mack met with the Tibetans. I have uh, very deep friendships with Tibetan monks. And so they don't see reality the same way. And that's why I love having conversations with them every week on Skype. Uh, we talk about these things and they, they just have such a completely different view of reality. So to hear Harvard speak that way reminds me of um, the, the fear that we, we all live with. So would you tell us um, what you wrote in the book about what Dr. Max said about fear? Yeah, uh, you know, now the, the way you uh, stated that just now uh, it presents it very well. It, it's uh, like uh, it, Harvard was the perfect foil yes. for Mac to raise these issues yeah. uh, because if Harvard hadn't, he would have had nothing to push back against mm -hmm. and the issues wouldn't have been defined as clearly. I'm just realizing this now that you said that. Um, that it created the drama that made this the story that it was. If Harvard had said, um, you know, theoretically, oh, it's, it's really interesting, John, you keep up your research, um, we would have lost a very dramatic confrontation and a chance to sharpen um, these issues. So I don't know, you know, it is what it is, but um, it certainly, uh, you know, uh, showed the, the lines of demarcation. Now, at the end of my book, I do have a, a little section where somebody who was recalling uh, an interview uh, with John, uh, uh, he was recalling it after John had died, and um, he was asking, he said to John, if you were on your deathbed, which he would be shortly, um, what would you say? And he said, um, uh, basically, um, fear is good. Fear is courage that is not. Um, he said, uh, fear is, is a useful 
uh, emotion uh, because it sharpens perception. And if you recognize fear and you use the fear to move yourself in some way, uh, I mean, I'm adding words to what he said. He said it much more succinctly, which is in the book. Yeah, in the but book. yeah, but that's basically the the idea that uh, fear is juicy. In one word, he said that. Uh, uh and and um fear is courage that is not um so you can use fear i guess he was saying to uh advance you in some way if you recognize what it is and don't shrink from it if you articulate it and 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 confront it uh so again he was very perceptive and brave that way um he also told somebody very shortly before he died um who was worried about dying mac uh, comfort him and said, you know, don't worry about dying. Anything can happen. And he says, I could walk out of here and get hit by a car. Right. Uh, he said that. And, you know, a week later he was. Um, and I, as I point out in the book, there's some reason to think he was almost anticipating a life on the other side. He was very interested in the next chapter of his research, which was uh, survival of consciousness and life after death. So um, to some extent, I think he was already anticipating the the discoveries he might make on the other side. Um, uh, but um, uh, it's kind of speculative. I like how you mentioned that he had incredible compassion for people who were different. And that I think that that's why so many people found comfort in him is because he was open to it. And I was listening to the BBC radio did a whole segment about him a year after he died. And they had his wife, Sally, who you spoke with mm -hmm. uh, for the book before she passed away. And at, at, at the end of this uh, BBC radio uh, the audio, I will provide a link to it in the show notes. Uh, Sally points out that what Dr. Mack did was he listened and he didn't dismiss things. And uh, another plug for Jung, I'm sorry, but it's just reminding me of it. So I, I studied psychology in college. I've always been interested in psychology. And I went through different psychologists, not because I, I had, I mean, we all have issues, but I didn't have any major issues. I was just interested in psychology. And it took me a long time to get to a Jungian and I stuck with it. Um, I found my analyst back in 1993 um, because no topic was strange or unusual or crazy. Mm they they accept it and they don't medicate you for it because there's something in it there's there's a there's a gift in it and i like that about uh she said that about dr mack is that he listened and he didn't judge yeah he uh because he, he had three boys and he was very interested in his, his, the development of his own boys. And he once wrote a 20 page uh, single spaced analysis of their relationships when one boy was bullying another. Um, but, um, you know, Laura, I got to tell you, uh, 30 years ago, I wrote a series for the New York Times on Freud. And um, Did you? Uh, it, 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 uh, I went into his relationship with Jung and the time Jung visited him and Freud apologized for his wife uh, being so dowdy in effect, which is a very strange thing to do. And um, so I, I did study this and um, it became the basis of the whole flap over Jeffrey Mason and his 
uh, Freud research. And Mack referenced this uh, in his own writings that he had come across this series in the Times. Again, a point of synchronicity. He didn't right. know me. I didn't know him. But he had read my reporting. And um, one of the things that struck uh, Mack about Freud uh, was this historic turn turnaround from the seduction theory where Freud basically uh, seemed to lack courage to to mm -hmm. document the actual assaults on young women uh, by members of their family and others, and to reconceive it as a um, psychological trauma based on, you know, forbidden desires. And <clears throat> Mac essentially said that uh, the, the people are trying to do the same thing with uh, alien abduction experiences. They're trying to say that these are not uh, real experiences. These are remembered rape traumas or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he said Freud encountered this and basically I'm interpolating here, but Freud didn't have the courage to document that these really were happening. So he, he did the next more acceptable thing and say that uh, these are imagined uh, assaults. Um, uh, and they're imagined because the girls often have uh, hidden edible desires with the father. Um, and uh, when, in fact, these uh, assaults were occurring in, in you know, in mm -hmm. Germany at that time, uh, in the 1880s or whatever. And it was a very real epidemic of child abuse that Freud turned into a, a psychiatric condition. Anyway. Um, and Freud was having a sexual relationship with somebody in his family, so maybe he was... That's right, his sister-in-law. Um, uh, very strange. By the way, we I did a piece in the Times that found the uh, uh, um, hotel register. Did you? He checked in with his... Guy found it. He checked in with his sister-in-law, and he wrote Freud and wife. We checked in and we said, was that a, to, I need links to this series. That I'll you send did. you that. Okay. I said, was it, was that a Freudian slip? <laughs> 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 like he, he forgot he wasn't with his wife. Oh yeah. Gee. Uh, anyway, that was so as he close was apologizing as for her being dowdy. Maybe he thought she was dowdy. Well, she was dowdy, but the sister-in-law wasn't much more beautiful, actually. <laughs> but uh, you know, who knows what okay. attracts people? Yeah, you know, yeah. Freud was a was a complicated guy. But anyway, yes. I did find that was interesting that my reporting on on Freud um, uh, helped me understand a little bit about mm -hmm. uh, this whole issue, and and John Mack himself referenced it. Um, when he said he he followed the controversy with Jeffrey Mason, okay. who was the first one to really popularize this turnabout uh, that Freud made away from um, actual seduction to the fact that it was imagined in order to cover up hidden desires. Anyway, um, it's a little uh, you know detour we did here. Yeah, that's so interesting. But yeah. Um, um, yeah. So anyway, um, uh, but. Um, you were talking about the shadow world and, and Jung. You know, I have a section in the book here. Uh, I just picked it out as we were going to talk. And yeah. I said that um, uh, Carl Jung found no certainty about their nature, UFOs, but overwhelming material pointing to their legendary or mythological aspect to the point that, as he wrote in The New Republic in 1957, one almost must regret that the UFOs seem to be real after all. 
So it's interesting. It goes back to your what you said before about how he didn't deny their reality. He sort of came to accept that. And today his head would be spinning because yeah. now they're really documenting these things, but they still could be archetypes. I mean, these people could, could still be projecting things on them. The fact that they are real yeah, doesn't as, mean as, they, yeah. As, as to what they are, I think projection comes in, but the fact that they exist, that they, they really do exist. What are they? And that is something I wanted to ask you. I don't know if you mind, but uh, in your New York Times article with Leslie Kane uh, about the leaked, was it leaked footage from the gun camera from the USS Nimitz? Uh, from the um, jet off the yeah limits. Um, well it wasn't leaked i mean the the people who got a hold of that including chris mellon and lou elizondo they had a right to it okay um so they made it available let's put it that way um i mean we got it um other people uh, later got access to it uh, but these were official video uh, navy videos um they had they were not classified they, yeah. they were not you know it was there was no crime in disclosing them they were right. paid for with taxpayer dollars yeah. they belonged in, in the public so um you know i wouldn't use the word leak necessarily they were okay. made available they were made available. Um, and and if our military pilots are seeing these things frequently, wouldn't there be more footage? There is. Yeah. <laughs> there's, ton there's tons of footage. We can't find, we can't get all of it. Can't get all uh, of it. Okay. Be because some of it is has been classified okay. properly or not properly. But the stuff that we put out on the Times website, the three videos, are only snippets yeah. of what exists. So there is much more. And uh, other videos, longer parts of these videos, um, some new stuff surfaced in the just in the last uh, few weeks um, that the that the, uh, the Pentagon authenticated uh, strange uh, videos of a triangle craft and something going into the water because these things operate underwater as well as in the sky yeah i heard you mention that and one of the things that i um that got me on my way when before i found jung i was heavily involved in the new age community uh shirley mclean did a mm. mini series called out on a limb based on her memoir out on a limb and she in in it she and she actually traveled to peru to film it and she kind of re relived what she lived there but the ufos that were seen there would go into the water and come out of the water and people were seeing right. them come in and out of the water and so now when i when i see that in the news and people are just so stunned i thought well that's been going on for a while yeah. that's nothing new but it's new new to some people um something that doesn't feel right to me and maybe you know and i can edit this part out is the Navy pilot, is he Navy? I think he's Navy. Uh, David mm -hmm. Fravor right. was featured in the PBS miniseries called Carrier. I have an obsession with aircraft carriers that goes way back. I know that's kind of random. <laughs> Let, let's let's go into that. <laughs> I, I, I do, right? What does that mean? I love aircraft carriers. And I, I got to go on one in San Diego last year, uh, right before the pandemic. So Fravor and his wingman, Alex Dietrich, were mm -hmm. featured in that PBS miniseries. Why is no one mentioning that? So when Fravor... Well, wait a Go ahead. Are you, mentioned, are you referring to the 60 Minutes thing? Because no. they had them both on. No, no, no. What I'm 
what 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 I'm curious about, again, I will edit this out if you would like, is when the story broke, I think you and Leslie Kane broke the story that this footage existed and was right. available. And so you wrote the New York Times story about how our Navy pilots were seeing these UAPs and had them on film from their gun right. camera. Okay. Right. It was David Fravor who came forward and his name was used and he was right. on Joe Rogan. And so he was named. They they used his name. David Fravor was in this PBS miniseries that was filmed back in 2005 and Alex. So when he was mentioning um, his wingman who, and then she was filmed in shadow for history channel, I knew it was her. You could tell. Right. Why is no one mentioning that this guy was featured on this miniseries years ago? It's interesting. You know, it's new to me. Um, uh, I was not aware of it. I, uh, I I thought she had not come out, Alex Dietrich, until the 60 Minutes uh, show two weeks ago. No, maybe she did not come out, but she was filmed for a History Channel show. You know how they have all these history's greatest mysteries? Yeah, yeah. And, and even uh, the Chris Mellon, Lou Elizondo, was it un unidentified? Unidentified. She was in one of those shows in shadow. But I remember that. Yeah, I do too. And I but I knew right away who it was because of my obsession uh. with aircraft carriers and I've seen the the PBS miniseries is 10 episodes. So it's 10 hours. It is fascinating. It is about life aboard the USS Nimitz from from the lowest level military personnel to the highest. Uh, and right. they they chronicle their lives. And Fravor was going in and out, flying in and out. Alex talked about flying at night, how difficult that was. So I knew who these two individuals were. And then years later, it's Fravor who is mentioned as filming these UFOs. I, I just thought... So wait a minute. Are you saying that in 2004, they didn't say that Fravor had seen UFOs? They did no. In, they did, in, in the PBS document, they, they did oh, not. I see. Interesting. They did not. I'm saying that of all the Navy pilots we have, of all the Air Force pilots we have, why did they pick someone who was on kind of a reality show to be mm. the spokesperson? As I said, he was on Joe Rogan. He was on a lot of podcasts. Why him? Yeah, they didn't pick him. We found him. I, I think. Uh, uh, back in 2017, he was not known to the outside world. Uh, I forgot how we found him at the New York Times, um, but uh, he was not a the personality he became later as the spokesperson for these encounters. So he became that as a result of the publicity we gave him with our reporting, I think, because we did a sidebar on him. that, that We did a sidebar to our 2017 front page story. Uh, the sidebar dealt with Fravor. Um, so, uh, he might've been on the, he was flying, you know, off the Nimitz, but if they didn't mention that he had seen UFOs, no one would pay any attention. Right. They did not mention that he had seen UFOs, but what, what I'm saying is that I knew who he was when, hmm. when this report came out that our Navy pilots were seeing UFOs. I knew who he was. So I'm just saying of all the Navy pilots, why was he the one to come out and speak about this publicly. He's already had airtime and was comfortable in front of a camera and is, I mean, he's photogenic. He's very articulate. Uh, he's very skilled. 
And so it's almost like that established his credibility as a Navy, Navy pilot. And now he's the spokesperson for this thing. So I just found that interesting. And also, I was just so confused as to why no one ever mentioned, hey, I saw Dave Fraber in yeah. that PBS miniseries. <laughs> that is interesting that he was in Carrier. I'll, I'll go back and look at that. Uh, uh, that is it. Because people didn't make the connection, obviously, once he became famous as the pilot who saw UFOs mm -hmm. and the underwater and the underwater uh, disturbance. Uh, uh, I'm not aware that people made the connection said, oh, he was the one that was in the PBS documentary, not talking about it, um, which is interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I, I've been talking <laughs> about it. No one's listening to me. No, no one was listening to me. That's a little interesting footnote to history. We can I, look into that. I've got a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I've got more. I do have one question. Do you know anything about how these these experiencers uh, that Dr. Mack worked with, they mentioned that this stopped for them. They stopped having the experiences. And I was curious about that because um, just a, a side note, I too, and have never gotten to the bottom of it, back in the 80s was felt like I was either having dreams or getting messages about the planet and about the climate. Mm. And I became obsessed with recycling. And I was part of the nuclear freeze movement as well. I marched for the coalition for a test ban. And I spoke for physicians for, for social responsibility, I think mm -hmm. it was, um, which Dr. Mack was mm. involved with. So uh, those telepathic messages that people were getting, those visitations, they stopped. And I'm curious about that. Not true. Um, in all Not cases, okay. I, I have just talked to a bunch of experiences. I'm continuing my research and they have told me they are continuing. One had an experience in February. Um, there was some uh, reference uh, I, I picked up that the hybrid uh, mission, so-called, has been concluded. And that part of the um, experiment is finished. I mean, again, this is highly speculative. I'm not okay. presenting this as a fact. That is one um, statement that people got who, who talked to um, to John Mack and afterwards that this um, this um, episode or you know. Uh, portion of the whole uh, interaction with, uh, you know, anomalies with alien intelligence is concluded that they don't have to do this anymore. Um, and there's now a hybrid race walking around, you know, all that again. Um, and that's why these experiences stopped. Uh, I don't think that's true, uh, that okay. they've stopped in all cases. Okay. Um, uh, it is very hard to get uh people to talk about these experiences obviously there are experiencer groups that meet they talk about this to each other there's still a, a ridicule factor a yes. heavy ridicule factor involved people are very reluctant to jeopardize their jobs by talking about this and going public um so um you know it's kind of understandable there's no way to measure it the poll there's no way to poll uh, you know, have you ever been abducted? Um, I mean, it's just a very, very difficult area. But I would not uh, accept your 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 premise there, uh, Laura. That it all it all stopped. Um, okay. 
Well, it was uh, maybe, mentioned maybe in not, that. Yeah, it was mentioned in that BBC Radio thing. Yeah, but that was in two thousand five. That 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 might that have stopped for some people, but okay. I don't think it stopped cold. Period. No, okay. no, it did not. Yeah, I, I'm just still a little. I don't know, surprised to hear that this is still ridiculed. I mean, after it's been such a long road, we've been at this for decades and people are still not mm. accepting this. Why? Because it's going to change their worldview, right? What we were talking about earlier or yeah. their religious beliefs will come into question. Well, it's so strange and uh, it's so contrary to the reality we perceive to be reality that it's it's a jolt when people say well i've been in contact with alien beings and you know the stories uh, which john mack uh, realized and i certainly realized in researching his story um, are beyond strange i mean each story has elements that carry it just when you think you've heard everything yeah and if you think that the stories encompass people you know seeing a ufo getting beamed into a ship uh, being subject to reproductive experiments giving birth to hybrid babies if you think that's the essence of the story you're wrong mm -hmm. i mean there are aspects of this that are so wild and so bizarre uh, and the fact that they're so different um is one of the things that that made john mack give them credibility because it's not like people are reading off a playbook and they mm -hmm. say okay we all had this experience we saw a ufo we got beamed inside we got you know reproductive experiments um the details are so singular and so striking mm -hmm. and so you cannot imagine somebody making this up mm -hmm. um so uh you know for example uh, in 1992 uh, there was a you, there was an alien abduction conference at MIT. I start my book with that story, mm -hmm. and people are kind of surprised to hear that MIT would. MIT didn't sponsor it. They they loaned a, a premises for this discussion, and um, anybody who purports to be a skeptic or thinks this stuff is nonsense should read this thick volume that was put out of transcripts from this you know atomic scientists and psychologists psychiatrists theologians social workers they were all contributing to this you know with their expertise and one of the papers delivered at this conference was from uh people uh, talking uh, about the experiments on on the ships that they remembered and they described mm -hmm. these instruments in incredible detail you know and um the point is they were not like ordinary medical instruments that, oh yeah, you're just remembering, you have a bad nightmare about a, a gynecological visit you had. So, you know, you're remembering this. These instruments did not fit any prototype of instruments we have on earth. The experiments um, don't match. They, you know, doctors on earth don't take people's eyes out, open their chests. Um, you know, all these things that people remembered going on on the, on the ships so they the details were so uh, striking and so indelible and so um, impossible to make up in terms of the yeah. detail mm -hmm. that it one of that's one of the things that convinced john mack that these people were remembering something real that happened in some dimension so yeah. um anyway um it, it, it's completely strange and if there's anyone out there who would like to talk to someone and 
doesn't have anyone to talk to about this uh, and is afraid of being committed or medicated or being called crazy, find a Jungian analyst. They do not uh, medicate, they will not medicate you. They will not think that you're crazy. And if you can't find a Jungian analyst, please write to me at laura at speakingofjung.com. So uh, before we wrap up today, I would like to mention, Ralph, that you will be speaking at the Contact in the Desert conference. And people that listen to this podcast know that I love that conference. I was there when it was held in Joshua Tree back in 2016. I've had wonderful experiences at that conference. Uh, you'll be So it's virtual this year. And so you don't have to uh, book a flight or a hotel. Uh, you can watch from your computer. They've done that with this year's Conscious Life Expo. I attended it virtually in February. It was fantastic. And then the Ozark Mountain UFO Conference did it virtually as well. Uh, it's wonderful. So you'll be speaking on Saturday, June 26th at 9 a.m. That, that is Pacific Daylight Time. Uh, your lecture is from 9 to 10.30 a.m. And the title is Impossible Yet True, How Alien Abduction Captured Harvard psychiatrist John Mack, and that will be followed by a workshop uh, in the footsteps of John Mack on Saturday, again, June 26th. That will be held at 1.15 p.m. Pacific time. Would you tell us a little bit about the workshop? Yeah, um, um, I cast that as a story of how a um, um, New York Times reporter, which I was for 45 years, uh, who investigated the mafia and corruption and Nazi war criminals uh, got involved in alien abduction and um, and how I uh, wrote my biography of John Mack, what sources I was able to gather. Um, and it's sort of an inside look at the writing process for people oh, who are wonderful. interested in, you know, how writers go about because I wrote other books before this, but none on this topic and uh, this presented, you know, sort of unique issues. So it's sort of a, a writer's uh, workshop on how I use the material uh, from his archives that no one else had access to and how right. I was able to weave, weave that in, how I got interested in the first place. And uh, again, it'll be open to questions. People may want to, you know, ask their own question. How do you do this? How do you do that? So I, okay. I see it as pretty open-ended. That's a 90-minute workshop. I will be there for sure because uh, that is of great interest uh, to me. I wanted to ask you about that actually, about your process and um, and and this wonderful book, which I'm going to mention here at the end. And then you're also part of the panel that will be taking place the following day on Sunday at 9 a.m. Pacific time. It's called the Abduction Experience and Alien Visitation Panel. It will be hosted by Alan Steinfeld. And Whitley Strieber will actually be on that panel, mm -hmm. along with Bruce Olav Solheim, uh, Chris Bledsoe, father of uh, our past guest, Ryan Bledsoe, Mary Rodwell, Michael Masters, Steve Mara, and Terry Lovelace. What do you know about the panel? Uh, not much more than you just okay. said, but it's a privilege to be on with these people. And Whitley in particular, who I've, who's interviewed me and I've talked to uh, for my book, uh, a wonderful source of information, yes. really one of the pioneers in he this sure field. Is. And particularly because his experience is so singular and does not fit any 
prototype. So people can't say, well, he's just echoing what everyone else has said. I mean, his story is so extraordinary mm -hmm. and he's so brave. Um, yes. And he's still wrestling with these demons. I mean, um, he's still struggling with the uh, aftermath of these terrible experiences that he had. So he is a real treasure. And um, he and his wife, Anne, late wife, Anne, uh, really did wonderful uh, research. He's still getting messages from her, he says, uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, interested in the afterlife. So uh, it'll be a real privilege to be on with all of them. Yeah. Uh, Whitley's going to come back to this podcast. We're going to do an episode about his book that he wrote with his late wife, Anne, when she was on the other side. It's titled The Afterlife Revolution. And so you mentioned that Whitley is still struggling and that his some of his experiences weren't very positive. So not everyone has positive experiences uh, with this phenomena, um, but it's not one thing. It isn't all negative or all positive. It, there, it's a both and, or it's everything in between. So if the, do you have any final words before I wrap up? Well, um, you know, people sometimes ask me how I rate John Mack or what's my, my bottom line. And I try to keep that out of the reporting of the book mm -hmm. because I didn't want to put my thumb on the scale. I wanted people to encounter, I wanted readers to encounter him with all his flaws, uh, his, you know, passions, his over-enthusiasms, his carelessness at times in terms of not being politically astute in you know, um, how to handle himself. And anyway, um, but at the end, <clears throat> I do say that uh, I think he fits into Joseph Campbell's, uh, uh, you know, uh, rubric of, uh, you know, the hero, the hero's journey, because he, 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 he was given a mission by stumbling across this phenomenon. Um, he didn't take it on immediately. He he wondered about it, just like I uh, say, Jonah in the Bible mm -hmm. didn't want to, you know, take take God's mission and try to run away. Uh, that didn't succeed. And then he went on the on the mission, the journey, um, John Mack, and um, had all these adventures, hair raising adventures, um, sometimes literally escaped with his life. He's down in the Amazon, got very sick. Um, and um, overcame the obstacles, was victorious, and came back with a message for a boon for mankind, yes. which is the knowledge that he uh, gained in the quest. And um, this is what Campbell wrote about. This is what I think John Mack did. And um, so, uh, yeah, I think he's a hero. But the other thing is, I think people sometimes... Uh, underrate humans and overrate the aliens and say the aliens have this technology that we don't have and they kidnap and abduct humans and they do all these terrible things. Uh, but uh, humans are pretty great too. We're the ones doing the investigation now <laughs> into what this phenomenon is. And um, uh, so we're writing about the, the aliens and maybe they don't have all the cards and maybe we're pretty great ourselves. Uh, so it's kind of whimsical, but um, uh, I give I give us our species, our human species, a little pat on the back and say, you know, we're pretty great, too. And uh, and John Mack exemplified the best of us.
Yes, and I actually had in my notes, uh, speaking of Whitley, that he introduced Dr. Mack as a real hero, a hero of science, an American hero, and my hero. And you describe Dr. Mack as the flawed hero of a mythic journey. And I think that's really beautiful. I, I highly recommend this book. I thank you again for writing it. It is incredible. And I look forward to hearing your talk at Contact in the Desert as to how you wrote the book. Uh, I will be there. Uh, I hope to see everyone else there. There will be links to registration for Contact in the Desert in the show notes for this episode. But I would like to end today with encouraging everyone to, well, I, I want to mention, speaking of Jung, is an Amazon associate. Uh, we do uh, receive commission from our Amazon sales, but I am a big proponent of independent bookstores. If there is one in your community, I would like to remind you and encourage you to shop at your local independent bookstore. Uh, as Mr. Blumenthal found Dr. Mack's book while he was hmm. hanging out in a bookstore. I've heard so many people say that uh, Jungian analysts, that's how they found Jung. They were in a bookstore and saw one of Jung's books uh, and it changed their life. Uh, I really miss hanging out in bookstores. Um, so if uh, you do, I want to point this out too. There is a bookstore in Taos, New Mexico that I used to love to visit. They have closed because of the pandemic, but they are still taking orders online. So that's another way you can support uh, independent bookstores that have closed their doors. A lot of them still have their inventory and will ship and you can order them online. So The Believer is available wherever books are sold. It's also available on Kindle, by the way. So you, yes, if you're, I actually you get to Kindle. read the book instantly, you can get it on Kindle. It will be available um, at some point, at some point soon, I hope, as an audio book, so people can listen to it in Great. their cars. So um, it's easy to get in one format or another. Thank you, Laura, for a wonderful conversation. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com, for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This episode is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying A-L-E-X-A, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to the University of New Mexico Press, to Whitley Strieber, and to Will B., I'm Laura London, and you've been listening to a very special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung.